I don't want a pickle. I just want to ride on my motorcycle. Hello, everybody, and welcome. This is the Noka Moto Podcast, episode number 177. I'm your host, Moto G. Pete, and with me is your other host, Swiggy. Yep. Coming to you from Nokomoto Podcast Network or Nokomoto Podcast Headquarters, which is also Moto One Podcast Network Studios, recording suite A, where we have been staying up all night, working around the clock to bring you the finest in motorcycle podcasting. So, Swigs. What are we gonna talk about this week? Um I think we're going to do best worst bike. It's just a hunch I've got. Then we're going to do, um, I think we're going to do a, how to sound like, you know what you're talking about on two wheel drive systems. I think that's the direction we're going to go. So let's see. Do we have anything else to, do at the beginning of the show you know what i'm gonna ask everybody there's been a bit of a slowdown on i uh, on apple podcast reviews so be nice if someone could take a moment and you know put in a few of those that'd be great and let's see with that um i know i keep teasing this every week there has been even more progress on the app We've just got a couple security things to do with it now, and it's pretty much ready to go. And then, um, yeah, I think that's really it. Okay, so, Swigs, are we ready to do Best Worst Bike? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so here we go. It's Best Worst Bike in the world this week. You know how it works. We're each going to pick a different motorcycle. We don't know what each other have chosen. It's a surprise, but someone's not going to be happy about it. Send your irate emails to contact at nokomotopodcast.com and we'll get back to you about it, okay? Remember, there's no crying in motorcycles. So, Swigs, you have worst bike in the world this week. I do. Awesome. Are you ready to reveal it? I am. Okay, I found the button this week. Here we go. And the worst bike in the world this week is the Triumph Tiger 900 Bond Edition. But why? Because this is the laziest, most ridiculous thing ever. So, essentially what this is, is a different set of painted plastics... Well, they're the same plastics, they're just a different color, and it has the 007 logo on the side. This is incredibly lazy. Not only that, but it's basically they're trying to do what they did with the Ducati in The Matrix. Yeah, but that's done well. Exactly. But instead, they're they're just doing it with the Tiger 900. And yes, there is a sequence in the movie with this bike, but they're trying to do this as as like a big flashy thing, and they're limiting them to 250 as if this is some sort of like definitive, like collectible Bond bike. And to some degree, it will be collectible because 
Bond fans will collect anything. They're not, we're not as bad as Marvel fans, okay? Look, okay, I gotta stop here for a second. So, I am not a nerd. And this is a thing that I kind of struggle with. Because though I'm pretty well versed in a lot of nerdish things, I am not a nerd. I've never really been one. You know, I can go a couple levels deeper than most people can about Star Trek T- TNG, right? I-, I can go a couple levels deep about some comic book stuff, but not really. I'm not going to pretend I knew who Iron Man was before 2005, okay? I'm not going to pretend I know anything about modern video games. I'm not going to pretend that I know any, I, I know jack shit about anime. Uh, there's Cowboy Bebop, and then I'm kind of, uh, Vampire Hunter D, I, I'm kind of lost after that, right? Sailor Moon, okay. I, I Pokemon is like legit anime to me. That's how, that's how <laughs> not into anime I am. So I'm not a nerd. And especially with this, you know, web dev world that I'm getting into, I struggle with that because people are referencing things left and right. And I'm like, you're kind of losing me. I'm not, I don't have this nerd badge that I wear, but James Bond is something that goes very far back with me that I've cared about for a very long time. And this doesn't surface very often, but I haven't seen this new film yet. And it concerns me. I, people have slipped little things to me. And I, I'm waiting to, to watch it here at home in a quiet place when I have nothing stressing me out and, and, I, and, I, and I can be prepared to have my heart broken. And so I, I, in all the things that I've heard slip about this, it's not been encouraging. And I've not heard anything about a tiger motorcycle in this movie, which leads me to believe that this isn't very, it's not that significant in the film. It's, it's not like, it's not like the matrix Two uh, interstate scene. That's just synonymous with the movie. Right. By the way, the way arch motorcycles are all admittedly shoehorned into the, the new matrix I have to imagine is 10 times more elegant than, than this is going to be executed. Well, I mean, there's always been vehicles like in the bond movies, but uh, so the, the issue I have with this is that this is kind of along the lines of like, Oh, we're going to have a doctor who scene with doctor who on a motorcycle. Well, here's a Bonneville. It's British. We're in London. You got to have the Bonneville. It's got to be a British bike, and, and you know that's that's fine. That all fits in. Yeah, like I hap- I'm not a. I'm, again, I'm not a nerd, but I happen to know that Hagrid rides a Bullet Five Hundred. But for what reason we don't know, because I don't believe a Bullet Five Hundred could pull Hagrid. But <laughs> you know, there we go. That's what right. he's riding. But, so, but again, just because it's British. So oh, we've got James Bond on a motorcycle, but weirdly. A Ducati would be more befitting. Or, you know what else? James Bond and BMW go back further than Triumph 
honestly. Well, they do, I, but put I him mean, on a BMW. But ultimately, it, you know, the whole reason, the, the only reason the bike is in the movie is product placement. Like Bond movies are like exclusively funded by product placement these days. Right. Well, Which, they always kind of have been. Yeah. But it was done with some level of grace. Yeah. But ultimately, looking at this bike itself, like what you're really getting is they've got four points here. Limited. They're only making 250. It's like, okay. There's only 270 decal stickers. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then the next point is exclusive. Which I thought that means the same thing. I thought that meant the same thing. (laughs) Uh, So yeah, you get the exclusive decals, great, and then style, which is all black again. The decals and it's matte black. It's the cheapest version. Uh, It's not. I don't know if it's matte black. It's it's like a really really dark green. Oh, is it? it, It's a weird. Uh, Anyway. Uh, maybe it is. It's it's really hard. These are terrible. It's a photos. matte color anyway, which we know is cheaper paint. Yeah, look, it's like this weird. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's it, but mm. anyway, and then the last point is technology. The last selling point, which is you get a a James Bond startup screen on your TFT display. Wait, you can't put technology as a selling point on a James Bond vehicle unless it like spills oil out the back. Well, it's a triumph in mine. Or <laughs> or shoot something out the front. Okay? It needs to have like infrared heat sensing on the road in front of you for like no pointless reason or something. I, I mean, if I own one of these, I would have to modify it to just to at least drop caltrops out the back. How hard would it have been for the stupid 007 version? With the TFT display to just give it a mode where it just had a little like IF camera, you know, and a sensor, and you just got an infrared mode on on the screen, just for no reason, but because it's the James Bond, that'd be okay. really easy to implement, and people would pay the extra two hundred dollars that it would cost to do or whatever. Right I, now, infrared's not hard to do. Okay, so. It'd be even better if you could get like a little bit of like image recognition and then like put a fake little like lock on for like a yeah. little missile or something. Or, or how about this? What if like when you op- when you turned on the headlight, right? Like the freaking um uh what do you call them? The 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 lens deals, the, the opening closing lens that James Bond walks into. Oh, just put that on the headlight. Or put something? that on the headlight. Yeah, yeah. I, what's it called? It's oh, it's called. Um, oh my god, this is a really this is a really basic camera term. Um, Iris. No shutter camera. Um, no, it's not the shutter. The shutter goes over. Um, is it the shutter? I don't think it's the shutter. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But the but you know when 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 James Bond starts, that it's it's a camera lens opening, and he walks into fr- and he walks into it. Do that on the headlight or something. Is it? I always thought it was the rifling of a barrel. Uh no. Well, it, maybe it's supposed to be both, but it's definitely a, a camera effect. I, I don't think. know. Anyway, I really I care about James Bond. Okay, so but, so ultimately, clearly, no one that cares about James Bond was consulted. Right. 
So this it is, should have a secret compartment somewhere. Right. So this is just going to be... How about that? So this is really just a tie-in, I think, to sell regular tigers. Because well, duh. The, the, it's, so they're, they're asking $20,000 for this bike. A regular tiger is like fourteen seven. Yeah, how much is the twelve hundred? Because this is just the nine hundred. Uh, that's a good point. Like, it's not even the best tiger. Let's see. Maybe they're planning on discontinuing the 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 big one. I don't know. Oh my god, just put the price on the fucking store page. Yeah. I hmm. So I don't care that it's a James Bond branded bike. I it bothers me. So the so the 1200 is uh 19 grand for the base model. Or you can get a really dark green one with the James Bond sticker for the same price and less displacement. Yes. I mean, is the sticker worth 300 cc's? I don't. I don't think it is. Well, and 900 dollars. Yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, the other element of this is that this is really not for Bond people. I would I would think that you were way of more Of course cuz it would have a fucking like secret compartment or something if it was for bond people. So if you were to uh, do you know would make you stand out as way more of a bond guy than this bike is if you owned a BMW R1200C in 2022. Yeah, that's true. You'd be a way as more embarrassing hard- as that bike is. <laughs> You'd be a much more hardcore bond fan. I mean, like, what, like, maybe, like, what if they'd put, like, just, like, a mechanical Omega watch on the dashboard or something? You know, like, gave it some, like, luxury items, right? Right. And the thing should, like, it, look, if, if freaking, um, what are the, what are the, uh, if your rolls come with a bottle of vodka or whatever, this should come with some scotch or something, right? Or some vermouth. Some, some vermouth, exactly. Give us a fucking bottle of vermouth or something. S- anything. I, mm. Yeah, there should be a secret compartment that has, like, and it comes with, like, a little airplane bottle of vodka and vermouth. Or just, just, or just straight up, like, have it come with a watch. Yeah, just, yeah. But I, I like the idea of just uh, having, like, a night, like, you know, like a... Like a two thousand dollar Omega watch just built into it would the, be even. It would be really slick. What if it came with a watch and the watch was the RFID uh, key for for wireless start? Yes, yes. What have I not already outdone this this bike? Yeah, like. Even if it's not as nice as a regular remote, give give us a four hundred dollar watch, and it's the and it's the the remote key. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Done. Done. I. Ugh. All right. It's gross. It it was so many easy things to do to make it James Bond, but Other than just I don't know. We'll, we'll put a decal on it and change the color and. 
That'll be $5,300, please. Because, okay, it's a triumph, and, okay, James Bond, whatever. Like, okay, uh, that... It's a little forced for me, but okay, fair enough. It works, and it's going to work for a lot of people. But it it's got to have like if it's going to say James Bond on the side, someone's going to be like James Bond bike. You got to be able to like hit a button on it and have it do something, right? Yeah. This better play like the Bond intro yeah, ex- when it starts yeah. up. When it starts up, it better go ba ba like that it, it better fucking do that uh but i bet it's not going to like are they going to bother to put speakers in it no i Ugh. so many missed opportunities that that's really what this is it's missed opportunities if you're going to do a james bond bike you got to put some because where's the extra money going does does the does the brand really cost that much Certainly, it would have been part of the deal in putting the 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 bike in the movie and paying for the bike to be in the movie. Be like, by the way, can we have the rights to make a James Bond edition? It's cross branding. It like you scratch our back, we scratch yours, right? Right. There's got yeah. That's got to be. There's got to be some quid pro quo in that, right? Versus just like they couldn't have paid extra to have to make this model on top of just having it in the movie. Well, I don't know. I guess I don't know how that works. But ultimately, at the at the end of the day, the issue with this is that James Bond is meant to be this iconic British character, Triumph, iconic British bikes. Oh, we're gonna do a crossover. We got the bike in the movie. And we want to show that we're big James Bond fans. Let's release a James Bond edition bike. Well, let's put some fucking effort in. Let's show that you actually care rather than just putting some decals on it for another $5,000 and then call it a limited edition. Yeah, and if it's supposedly going to be collectible, people wouldn't mind if it had half a gallon smaller tank just so you could put in a little secret compartment that holds a watch or a fucking laser pen or some shit. Anything. Yeah. <sighs> All right, I think I've made the case. You I have. Think we can move on. All right, okay. <sighs> All right, so let's talk about something that brings me joy. All right, we're going to get into best bike in the world now. Okay, so... The best bike in the world this week is. Uh, I'm especially drawn to the 2008 version, but pretty much any year, the Yamaha XT250. Oh, we're going to dual sport. So a lot of dual sports don't really work. Right? And... This is a dual sport that really does, but gets forgotten about because it doesn't make 650 single power. But I think it's because people aren't realizing what it really is good for. So we have poo-pooed a lot of dual sport bikes for a majority, for a plethora of reasons. Uh, the, The biggest one is... 
when they're high performance, the maintenance schedules are ridiculously short. When they're more geared towards uh, a wider range of on-road uses, they get way too heavy and their off-road capability sinks really fast. Like the off-road capability disappears quicker than they gain on-road capability. It's, It's a weird shifting scale that way. And... Then on top of that, people just think you need more power than you need. And of course, when they're more geared towards on-road ability, they um, the they just get ugly. They stop looking like off-road bikes, and and that 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 goes pretty quick too. And and the weight mm-hmm. problems, all of it. So what we have here is an interesting thing so it's this is so to to the uninitiated it just kind of looks like a dirt bike it's not especially big it's not especially small it's got a big tall fender it's got traditional forks with big gaiters on them it's got disc brakes it's got uh, a high exhaust. It's got you know sport bike tail. It's got a very enduro look to it. it. It comes road legal, full set of lights, reflectors, all that stuff. It's got a dirt bike seat. It's got a nice little um, headlight fairing. It's got a few extra things you wouldn't expect. It's got like a digital speed readout and stuff like that. Um. Doesn't come with bark busters, but you typically see them with that. Um, but this thing has a couple a couple little traits that are hiding in plain sight that make it so much more off-road capable than you would think. Right? You're gonna absolutely be able to run circles around people on their KLR 650s off-road with something like this. And honestly, you're not going to be trailing very far behind them on the road either. So this is a air-cooled 250 two-valve carbureted motor. It is dead simple. It's practically like a like a, an early 80s engine. It really is. They it's hardly changed at all. They might I think like the very, very new models have some fuel have fuel injection, but like it doesn't really matter. So you get about 20 horsepower, which doesn't sound like enough, but that's enough for an honest top speed of about 70 miles an hour. Yeah, which is probably all this is going to be geared for anyway. There is YouTube video of people attaining 83 miles an hour. But, you know, I'm just going to put that off to speedos being way off and maybe being able to go downhill a little bit. But 70 miles an hour seems honestly attainable. And I think they even, like, the claimed top speed is, like, 75 or something. So you can do little highway stints on this, no problem. And state highway, you're going to be able to do 55 comfortably. The bike's not going to be angry at you, right? So this thing weighs 260 pounds. 
that is the dry weight, but you're still under 300 pounds wet that way. Okay, so you're light enough to be doing off-road things there. I mean, yeah, it'd be nicer to be closer to 250, but 300 is totally manageable weight for off-road. It's a damn sight better than any 650 class bike. You can get uh, a bajillion accessories for this if you want to carry luggage and boxes and all that stuff. There's a full suite of all that kind of stuff. But this also is merciful on the maintenance schedule. This is a proper 3,000-mile oil change. Okay, so this is reasonable. This is the bike to ride. This is this is the bike to ride to the trail, ride the trail, ride home. This is the one. You don't need to be breaking speed limits on the way to the trail, right? You, and what are the what are the odds the interstate is taking you to the trail anyway? Right? right now, for people who doubt the off-road capability of this, I'm going to reveal something in a minute that should put everybody's worries to rest on that. Okay, so in the meantime, Swigs, like what? What? I mean, because there's just a million really nice little things about this bike. What? What? What sticks out as a concern to you that you might not be able to live with this? So for the kind of off-road riding you would do, I don't think it's a concern for me, but I think a lot of people would probably point out that the the forks are not inverted and they look pretty skinny. And what are they? They are oh, so 35 millimeter forks. Mm-hmm. But again, that's for the lightweight. This isn't yeah. for doing crazy jumps. This is for trail riding. This yeah. is for rock hopping. This is for enduro riding, not motocross. Yeah. So these forks are actually adequate. You need 48 millimeter inverted forks with 12 inches of suspension when you're going full fucking send over tabletops. You don't need it for for going down hills. Like you don't need it for... Right. You, you just don't need that kind of suspension for, for that and for... You know, uh, for for rocky terrain, you don't need that kind of suspension. Yeah. And again, until you're really, really talented, you would trade it for lighter weights anyway. Yeah, I, I think for your average rider, it's kind of it, it's one of those. Can you actually exceed the potential of the bike? For a lot of riders, probably not. Um, I mean, having more power would probably be nice for some situations and a bit more of a thrill on like straightaways. But it's if you're if this if the pure, if the real re, um, choice for this bike is if this is not for taking to the park but for doing the trails and things, it doesn't matter. Exactly. Now, um. What were the wheel sizes on this again? Um, because, uh, right, so you got a 21-inch front wheel and an 18 rear, right? So all you fucking tire 
size snobs out there. Okay. We, we, we've got your fucking tire sizes that you like. Um, let's see here. So that's a, uh, 270 pounds. Oh yeah. Uh, 2.6 gallon gas tank. And the fuel efficiency, if I remember is off the fucking charts. Let's see here. That was XT 250 miles per gallon. What was that again? Uh, 76 claimed miles per gallon. So we're at least getting 60, no matter what. That's that's really impressive. I told you, this is the bike for getting to the trail, riding the trail, and getting back. So this says, uh, I'm just looking at the spec sheet here. It says the compression is nine and a half to one. Yeah. How high does this rev? Uh, it's not that high. I want to say it was 6,000 RPM. Okay, so the, they're just, so there's nothing fancy on this. It's just. It's, it's like the KLR. It's, it's the, it's a sturdy hammer. Like, does it make a ton of power? No, but what does it do? Never break. Mm-hmm. What does one of these cost? Um, oh, there's like fucking peanuts. I can't remember. Um, you look it up and now, um, let's look at what a modern one costs. It's a U.S. only model now. Um, but I want to say these were somewhere like seven thousand dollars. Oh, fifty two hundred. Yeah. Okay. So nothing. Nothing. Okay. So that is, yeah. So this is basically a Ninja four hundred. Or are they no? Uh, I think four thousand or five thousand. I can't remember. Oh yeah, you're right. They were. Yeah, they are. They are cheap. Um, yeah, this is really cheap. So on top of all of this, this bike has a little claim to fame. This is part of one of the world's most bizarre, specialized, and when called upon extreme rescue units the planet has ever known. So... This bike was uh, discontinued in Japan, but revived in 2012 in the aftermath of the like 9.2 Richter scale earthquakes in Japan. And the Japanese government decided that the Department of Transportation needed its own motorcycle rescue unit to go into collapsing train tunnels. Oh, was this and after this the, is was the it, bike selected for that job? Was this after the tsunami? Yes. Awesome. Okay, so, so this bike of all bikes was determined to be the one that could go through like like rocky like you know like boulder uh tunnels, like boulder filled like tunnels and and like 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 um well also for being honest the japanese police prob most japanese policemen probably couldn't balance a full-size dirt bike oh yeah well that's the other thing too this has a really merciful 32 inch seat height yeah 
which I mean is kind of low for a dirt bike, but I mean, it's still got nine inches of suspension travel, which again, for like a motocross bike, that's pathetic for like a seventies or eighties motocross bike. That's acceptable for just a modern enduro bike. That's good. Right. Yeah. If you're just trying to traverse some uncooperative terrain, it's fantastic. Uh, this will do like, you know, again, this is not going to be the most enjoyable bike for the track, but uh, like this would be good on like the ATV course at whatever tracks you go to. This would be good at like, you know, the, the BC riders tracks as well. Uh, this would be, this would still be enjoyable a level above fire roads. Yeah, if you're going down, like, if you're going off, like, the chill trails at, like, Moab or something. Right. Yeah. Like, it will do real off-road stuff. It's not going to do the crazy stuff, but are you a crazy stuff kind of rider? Are you really doing the hardest trails right now? You know, are you really, you know? Right. And it makes that 20 horsepower that most people say is impossible to use. Like, honestly, it is enough. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. So, but so for me, it outclasses the, um, the CRF, um, 250 F from Honda, which I really like as well. Don't you mean the, the X? No, no. So Honda makes a CRF 250F that I I think is an exceptional buy as well. And it's basically a bike like this, but with a little bit better suspension. But it's sort of like, okay, you're 40-something and you're riding with the kids. And are you really hucking it big anymore? Are you really going crazy? Or do you need something with electric starts that's going to be good for getting on and off of 15, 20 times a day while you help other kids learn to ride or you're doing trails and what, you know, something. Is, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Right. And it's more like 25 horsepower or something like that. It's an air cooled 250 and it's got a, it's got the CRF looks, but it's really just an XR 250 brought up to date with a little bit better front suspension. Well, this looks a little, this doesn't look quite like a three quarter, size bike it's, it's a little, a bit, little bigger, bit bigger but it, than but it's that undersized. it's like yeah it's not a full-size dirt bike but it's close um this is a little bit smaller but a little bit more rugged weirdly but but what well maybe a little less rugged but still very capable but the big thing about this is it also comes totally street legal and totally usable with a reasonable service interval right but you can really live with this. It's not just going to eat tires like crazy. It's not, you're not going to be changing the oil every five minutes. You're not going to be working on it all that much because it's really simple. It's just a super simple air cooled two valve 250. I, I, there's just not much you have to do to it. You just, you know, if you just want to ride drama free, it's good for riding around town. It's good for getting to the trails. It's half decent at riding the trails. It, you know, but kind of right. like the TW 200, 
it's just kind of exist mostly it's just kind of existed mostly unchanged for a long time for a very good reason they kind of nailed this in the late 80s and haven't needed to change it yeah and yeah it's like the tw200 it's kind of a little bit of a living fossil but i i think of it as the big brother to the tw200 it's good at a lot of the same kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but the tw200's a little bit more farm bike and this one's just a little bit of a step up in what you can use it for right well, and also technically highway league. Yeah. Which, I mean, you probably don't want to do long trips on the highway with this, but like if you've got to go two exits or something. Oh, it'll random. totally do that. No problem. I yeah. mean, and if even if you live like in the city, right? If it's like a high traffic interstate where you're probably not going to break 45 during rush hour. Yeah. And well, most highways through the city, through cities are 65 anyway, with all the interchanges. Mm-hmm. So, like, this would be, yeah, totally reasonable. Yeah, I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. So, yeah, I it's it's not new and exciting, but it's kind of just always been excellent. And I, yeah, I, I could see myself getting one of these. I think for Colorado, this bike makes a lot of sense. Yeah. All right. Let's... Just take a little quick break, and I'm going to make some more tea, and then we're going to come back with our how to sound like you know what you're talking about. All right, so let's do a who how to sound like you know what you're talking about. So in this one, we are going to discuss and explain what we know about the world of two-wheel drive motorcycles. It's a safe bet that upwards of 99% of our listeners have only ever ridden a one-wheel drive motorcycle. That's fair, except for all you dirty trike owners. Well, okay. Um, (laughs) we'll, We'll get into some of that gray area. But yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, even, even a, a, a huge amount of trikes are only single wheel, right? Like a Nikens one wheel drive still. That's K&M's true. one wheel drive. MP3. MP3, right. All the reverse trikes. Tri- uh, is it Tri-City? Yeah, Tri-City's rear wheel. Yeah. Yeah. So the, um, yeah, just because the whole thing of putting a differential in and all that stuff is just a hassle. And not really worth it. So unless you've got something like a Harley freewheeler, you know, it, a lot of trikes aren't, you know, and, and how many trikes just have the training wheels on them? You're still single wheel drive. So let's talk about two wheel drive. Now, when you say two wheel drive, what most people are probably going to be the most familiar with is sidecars with drive to the to the sidecar wheel. So let's start there because that's probably the furthest off the main part of this, right? So uh, 
there are plenty of super old motorcycles that did this. This was very much a wartime thing. And the company that endures and still does this in any sort of big, meaningful way is Ural. So you might be at some point swiping through Ural motorcycles and you're like, Ural motorcycle rig, $16,000. And all of a sudden you're like, Ural motorcycle rig, $22,000. And you're like, blip, 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 why? Well, it's got a system that you can, I think, usually engage or unengage to extend drive to the sidecar wheel as well. In my opinion, it's just not worth it. Because as far as I'm aware on the Ural, it's that wheel is just spinning with your back wheel. Like if anything, it's making the whole thing even harder to control. I mean, it's great if you're stuck, like in the mud or something. I'm sure you want it. But I, I don't think many people are really, uh, you know, hardcore off-road adventuring with their Ural sidecar rigs these days. Yeah. Right? I think that's a safe bet. I, personally, I think the things are sketchy enough on the road. So <laughs> I, I can't even imagine doing one off-road. They're so bad. But I don't know. Some people love them. Uh, if you love them, that's fine. It's it's not my thing. I like I I I've I am on record saying that riding a Ural is more like riding a child's drawing of a motorcycle than riding a motorcycle. It doesn't feel like there's any part of it that's actually solid. The, the whole thing seems to have flex in every part of it. Yeah. It, it's physically changing shape like a, like a waterbed as you go down the road. <laughs> it's like a, like a, you know, that, that, uh, that weird early Mike judge art style with all the squiggly lines and Beavis and butthead. Yeah, yeah uh, it that, vibrates uh, <laughs> like a character. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's the consistency of your all friend. If Doctor Katz was rode a motorcycle, right? <laughs> yeah, that, Doctor Katz. There's a good '90s deep pull. <laughs> okay, so so let's put that to the side because that's that's an old old two wheel drive system. Um, but it endures till today, and hey, if it's your thing, it's your thing. Go for it. But there's a much better kind of two-wheel drive that we're interested in, and that's inline two-wheel drive. So front and back wheel. Now, why would you want to do this, considering that almost nobody has it and the motorcycling world seems to exist just fine without it, right? Well, I would argue that there is a there's an obvious advantage to two-wheel drive in low traction situations. However, it's really to do it mechanically historically has been an engineering nightmare and has been overly expensive so in the performance world 
you don't want it because you just want to get the maximum power to the ground. You want to reduce weight as much as possible. And you're just relying on the rider to be skilled enough to handle the conditions they ride through. With the cheaper bikes, it's just too expensive, adds way too much weight, and essentially you're just going to have a vehicle that's inappropriate for the rider based on weight and based on on price point. So, like, why make a beginner bike that is priced out of the beginner bike rider's price range? So, historically, it's not been done for those reasons. But there have been lots of different approaches that have tried to make it work to varying degrees uh, and try, tried to find their own little niches. Uh, I think those are, those are the ones worth talking about. Well, should we start with probably the next bike our listeners will be most familiar with since you actually had one and thus the bike that really introduced us to the world of inline two wheel drive. Give us a breakdown. Uh, yeah. So I had the Ubco two by two, uh, which was a fantastic little bike until it got stolen. Um, and that was fantastic. I remember what well, when I bought it and you got a, you got to see it for the first time. The first thing you did was try to crash it on some ice. Yeah, there was a huge ice patch in the parking lot and I, that was exact Well, I'd heard legend of the amazing traction that these things would have and sure enough, I took it onto the ice, I gave it full throttle, the back end started swinging out wildly out of control and the front wheel grabbed it. And we proceeded forward and everything turned out. Okay. It was, it was really good. And this was a thing that only had about what? 36 miles an hour top speed. Uh, I believe it was capped at 30. Um, I mean, it would roll downhill faster, but the power would cut out cause it was regulated. Um, yeah, but that, that's something you could turn off to get a little bit more power out of it. But the whole thing was probably like five horsepower at most. I think it was closer to four horsepower. It's It was somewhere uh, in that four to six horsepower range. I thought it was a little more than that, like six or seven. But yeah, it wasn't fast. Yeah, but, but it had a decent range. It was like 70 miles, something like that. Uh, 70 miles ridden economically. Yes. Yeah. Which was really good for the size of the battery and every, it was wildly efficient. Yeah, it was really good. Um, and I think, and one of the, one of the uh, advantages of it was that because it was two wheel drive all the time by going with the two smaller motors, it, you know, cause you know, Six horsepower is a fair amount for the size of the hub motors, but by splitting it across two, it did the thing where it it managed to be a bit more efficient by dropping by lowering uh, the copper losses. So it turned out to be a bit of an efficiency thing, and you didn't. And they got cheaper motors, and essentially it was really great because even if you wanted to take the thing apart, uh, those little motors did the same thing that my e bike does, which is. It's literally just two XLR cables. Uh, and that's, it's like one on the front, one on the rear. And after that, it's like a, a mountain bike wheel. 
just an oversized, essentially like a fat bike. Yeah. After that. Uh, and that's kind and of. It had 16 inch wheels, right? Or uh, 17s? It was 16 or 17. It was around that. Um, but yeah, it. And this is the, the great advantage of electric um, is the fact that you get to abstract away everything. You put the hub motor on, you run one cable to it, and then after that, it's just kind of, oh, where are the batteries going to go? Well, wherever you can run a cable to. Where's all the controls? Where's the controller going to go? Wherever you can run the cables to and wherever you can mount it. Anything can right. go You anywhere. don't have to come up with a ridiculous steering system for the front wheel or ridiculous power, power delivery system if it's a hub motor. Right. You get to just move anything wherever you want. And it just works. Right. So, yeah, just uh, an electric bike with hub motors, front and rear wheel, imagine the possibilities and i think yeah we we've been thinking this is going to be a much bigger deal moving forward for electric bikes and well especially for off-road because it's just such an easy thing to implement that is not really this big deal that it is with doing it with a gas-powered bike right so so let's have some fun here. Let's talk about Rokon. Because that's the other big name in two-wheel drive that people are going to know about. Yes. And so, with an engineering philosophy that you're all is envious of. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so the the Rokon is a pretty expensive bike at eight grand. I mean, the two by two is not far off that also. They're like, what, six to seven? It was like six and a half. I think they're seven brand new. I'm not sure where they are, but they're, they're not. I think, no, the, the, the Upco is, the two by two is cheaper than a Rokon. Oh, yes. But, but so Rokon's in a sort of seven to nine and a half thousand dollar range seven and a half to nine and a half depending on what you're buying but so the rocon is again not fast we're talking a top speed of maybe 30 it's basically got a 200 cc like pull start lawnmower engine on it but it's kind of a prepper's vehicle in that it will go anywhere and it will go up anything And it is two-wheel drive, the front and the rear wheel, powered by the same motor. And one of the reasons it doesn't go very fast is the gears go down really low. Really low. First gear tops out at 10 miles an hour. Yeah, this thing has the gear ratios of a boat lift but you're probably <laughs> not gonna take it up to 10 miles an hour in first gear you're probably gonna shift into second at walking speed it, it yeah. is a really low geared thing but the reasoning for that is it's not hugely um heavy i think a i think a mini cooper might shift into second at a faster speed than this does. Oh, easily, easily. So it, um, 
Right. It, it it it's just yeah. It's and I think it's only three speed as well. It is three speed. So, right, yeah. Second gear gets you up to maybe twenty or something like that. Then third gear is whatever you can hope for. So it goes anywhere though. It'll go up the the craziest, steepest, weirdest hill you can imagine. It will. Um, it it'll, it'll do it, never breaking down. You can just kind of put a little bit of oil in it and then ride around the world. It's you said like famously, it's the only bike to cross the Darien gap. I don't know if it's still the only bike, but it was like back in the seventies or the eighties. It was the first bike. Right. It's a company that's been bought and sold a few times, but it's, I think it's always pretty much remained in production and they are they're largely unchanged from their early days in like the sixties or early seventies, something like that. It is uh, it's very much a ranch kind of bike. I mean it'll go through anything, the deepest mud, the whatever. Um you don't need any air for the tires is a weird thing about it. And you can also just fill the tires with water for survival situations and bizarre things like that. It'll carry a lot more weight than you think. And again, this is all from the insane gear reduction and the relatively high torque ratio you get from from taking that down. Um, but, Ultimately, but let's talk about how it implements the front wheel drive, because for a long time, this is kind of how people thought was the only way to do it. Yeah. So there's basically like a bevel drive off of the crank going up to just in front of the um, just in front of the front forks or in front of the forks. And the way that it works is it then gets transferred to a chain drive that goes straight down the left side, bolts on to the to the suspension, or onto the fixed part of the suspension, and then it's a belt drive to the wheel. And there's all sorts of weird gear reductions and proportions across the whole thing. It's very elaborate, but it's also it's also kind of simple as well. It's it's hard to describe it, but Google Rocon front wheel drive and you'll instantly understand how it works and you'll go, "Oh." But yeah, it's 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 like a series of like three final drives essentially yeah. <laughs> to do its thing. Um, but what's kind of charming about it is that it's all on display. So you can see exactly what's going on. Like if all of a sudden you don't have power to the front wheel, like you're going to be able to see why, because it's all exposed. Well, it needs to be too, because if you're out in the middle of nowhere and that belt jumps off the, the, the front, right. You're not going to want to remove things in the middle of a river Right. To put the belt back on. You need to be able to just somehow just just pull it back on with your hands yeah. and then get going again. That's that's really what it's all about. It's you, you should be able to fix everything on this with 
one screwdriver and two sockets. That's kind of the idea. Yeah. So so there's the Rokon. And everyone's loved the Rokon, the two-wheel drive, but it has very limited performance. And for years and years and years, that's kind of the most we thought two-wheel drive could really be in any meaningful way. Like, okay, sacrifice high-end performance, get the torque, you're at low speeds, but you've got these ridiculous, you know, balloon tires. I mean, they look like the tires off of a um off those uh those Honda three-wheelers from the from the 70s and 80s. The uh the Honda ATC, the the big wheels, right? Yeah. They look like those tires. Um so so where would the evolution of of two-wheel drive be? What would the next meaningful one be, you think? Because we've got a lot more examples here. Uh, so there's the the Yamaha two-track. I don't know the two-track. So the two-track was the, um, the fluid-powered front hub motor. So oh right. So I believe yeah, I believe they only made like 250 of these, but it was technically the first um two-wheel drive production, like the first production two-wheel drive dirt bike. Um so it was just it just had basically like an extra sort of oil pump that was just pumping transmission fluid essentially to the front to a front hub motor, right? Yeah, as sort of like with the DNO one, it's just a uh they call it a what's the term uh a collector or a basically it's just a fluid motor. You pump fluid in one one hose, it comes out the other hose and it just centrifugally powers the the whole thing, which so then you just have something attached to the, you have a pump attached to Is it to essentially the, a torque converter in the in the front wheel? Essentially, yes. Yeah, so basically just off the crank you just have a you you have a, a centrifugal You're just spinning a, a propeller in the front wheel that's then turning an impeller. Yeah, so you have one yeah, so you have one on the on the you basically have one off the the crank. And then you have another doing the opposite in the in the in the front hub, which is kind of a it's I believe it was horrendously inefficient. But it, it sounds horrendously <laughs> inefficient. <laughs> but it also has the a similar elegance to the electric solution, which Right, is, you just run a cable up there and you're well, good. Yeah, you just run a hose. It's a series of tubes like the internet's. You know, you can yeah. you can just abstract it away, which is really cool. Um, obviously, they did not think this was going to be the next big thing because they they only made two fifty and they never made any more. But it was a cool concept. Um, yeah. So then there was the what do we got next? Oh, we well, we got a couple more left. Uh, let's do the we BM- got some big ones left. Yeah, let's do the. Uh... Oh, wait, hang on. There was a um, there was a Suzuki as well, I believe. Uh, what was it? The- makes you wonder what Honda had in this department that they just never let us see. Yeah, 
I... Oh yeah, so Suzuki had the XF5. Um and the the XF5 had uh basically kind of the modern mechanical solution to this, which is you just kind of bolt on you just clamp onto one of the forks and you just run a bevel drive. So it's very similar to the the Rokon in that you're doing a mechanical linkage to the motor, but you just run a bevel drive down to the front wheel. So then the only problem point is the is the linkage at the triple tree. And once you've got that solved, then you're good. Um it's an interesting solution. It's kind of a little bit weird. And that you kind of have to have a massive torque arm to bolt the whole thing together so it doesn't twist around. But oh, I found a picture of it here. Yeah, I this is kind of cool looking. I could see how a modern, you know, lightened version of this might work pretty well. They're not ridiculously far off. Um, oh, before we go into more higher tech stuff, I do want to give honorable mention uh, in, as far as I know, it was never done in any sort of widespread way, but there were plenty of sort of 1920s to 1940s one-off examples of motorcycles with radial engines in the front wheel. I know the French did this a lot in their insane, like, post-World War One, pre-World War Two aviation industry. Well, when they right, were but those would be those. right. Those would be bikes with ridiculously large front wheels to put these radial engines in. But some people have built radial engines small enough. So imagine a, a, an aircraft radial engine, but it's not spinning a propeller. It's inside a wheel, so it's spinning the wheel. Yeah, yeah, it's. It's it's an odd thing, but I mean it's cool, but it's not practical. It never worked in production, so it's more of an honorable mention than anything else. So, um, so so moving on from from there, various people have tried things like, well, okay, if we've got something with center hub steering, that makes powering the front wheel a little bit easier. But as you can imagine, the same old problem of center hub front steering is well you're basically making um a swing arm but that's legit split into two and that's ridiculously expensive to control that and yeah we can put controls on that sure but it's no one's been able to do it for a reasonable cost well not only that but then you also have to manipulate a bevel drive or a chain off axis which or you have to have it come down like at the at a regular at a rake like a regular fork would which it's not like essentially that means you have to add another universal joint onto it to make that work which i can't imagine is going to be reliable and you know how popular center hub steering is right now anyway eric sorry our podcast dog eric's scratching shit all right so um let's let's keep moving on here so it turns out 
kind of returning back to this idea of front wheel drive that is mechanical. After years and years of various companies trying oh, we various just different give a quick systems, mention to the um, the GS twelve hundred, they well, did I, make I, a model where they um, with mechanical front. No, where they just slapped a a ten kilowatt. Well, I I think we'll get there towards the end, actually, because that's kind of like comes to a logical conclusion. Um, Okay. Well, so I want to talk about how um, it turns out there's like kind of in the direction of the Suzuki, the the XR5. It turns out for cost, the implementation of running um, uh, a second chain off your output shaft up to the top of the triple tree and then down the forks in various other ways. Whilst maybe not being able to get as good a power as you will from a center hub design or something like that, from a cost and engineering point of view, still it's, it's basically the Rokon model, but implemented better in, in higher performance machines. Yes. And also, um, well, it also has the major benefit of just being able to take, instead of designing an entire motorcycle around it, you kind of get to do what, you know, prototype racing does, which is just take an existing design and then um, and then modify it. So you don't have to reinvent everything around this novel drivetrain that changes everything about the bike. You get to just stand on the shoulders of giants and just modify an existing design a little bit right so enter christini motorcycles if there's one thing you're going to google from this episode please please make it christini motorcycles this is such an over-the-top engineering feat and you know, I have to say one of the problems with front-wheel drive bikes, especially mechanical front-wheel drive bikes, is that they often look weird. And this is a company that has managed to make a not outrageously expensive production two-wheel drive performance dirt bike uh, street legal out of the box with minimal compromise that looks 97% normal. Yeah. Is that a fair description? Yeah, that's pretty fair. So if you look at one of these bikes, if you go to their website, you immediately see there's a, there's a, there's a great little how it works. So, they show you you've got right where the normal sprocket is on almost any regular motorcycle that's chain drive. There's two sprockets on that on that output. And one, you know, the chain that's normally there that just goes to the back is just there like it would always be. But there's a second sprocket sitting on the outside of that. And it runs a chain that goes up to another sprocket that's sticking out the side of the perimeter frame. And then that goes into a little gearbox 
that sits basically just underneath where the gas tank is for for lack of a better description it's basically right next to your left knee yeah and then that has a little universal joint on it and that runs a shaft drive up to the triple tree and then the it goes into the triple tree and then as it spins it turns two different bevel drives inside of it which then turns two chains <laughs> one goes out to the left fork and one goes to the right fork and then that turns two more shaft drives essentially which telescope with the suspension all the way down the forks on the on the insides of the forks. So if you're looking at the bike straight on, you'll see these two little little shaft drives coming on down the inside of the forks in between the wheels and the forks. But from the side, the side profile of the bike, you're hard pressed yeah. to tell how it works. Yeah. And then of course there's two more bevel drives in the hub itself. Right. That actually powers the motor. Yeah, yeah, because these these are like kind of small, so it has two of them to power the motor, one on each side, exactly. It's wonderful. Now, this works because looking into it, it seems like it only provides power to the front wheel up to a certain speed. And then you overcome the speed of the gearbox, it disengages, and it's just free spinning. Yeah, if the front wheel is spinning faster than the ratio that the motor is providing power to it, it'll just freewheel in that little gearbox. So this is hugely important because it seems that recently we've made bigger strides in making two-wheel drive a realistic and doable thing because we're now willing to make the compromise that we only want to have or only need to have two-wheel drive at low speed. Yeah. Because, yeah, when are you going super fast when you need this? You don't. You need it when you're going slow and climbing a hill. You need it when you're going slow through the mud or dirt or, you know, low yeah. traction situations. Low or inconsistent traction situations. Yeah. If you're doing 70 and you hit ice, there's no amount of two-wheel drive that's going to help you. But if you're doing 15, maybe. So... I, I'm in love with this. So these motorcycles, you can get one based on a Honda CRF 450. You can get one based off a of Gas Gas 300. And these bikes weigh like around just a little under 300 pounds, like 290, something like that. Uh, So the 450 is like 295 or something. And... The 300 is like 255, I want to say. 255 is a good weight. Yeah. And that's um, the... Uh, uh, for for the amount of extra shit that's on this. That's a right. good weight. And they're kind of... They're very similar. Um, the 300 is a two-stroke, so that's 42 horsepower. And the 450, I think, is 44 horsepower, they're saying. Um, uh, for dirt, that's still unusable power. Yeah, and it's all, and you know, and and 
the bikes are a little bit heavy for compared to a high performance machine, but like, but you've got two wheel drive. Yeah. Well, yeah. Also like 300 pounds is not insanely heavy for a dirt bike for a high performance competitive bike. It's a total dog, but it's not like 300 pounds is just an absolute whale in the dirt. Like, People have been riding dirt on much heavier, much less practical machines for a long time. It's totally reasonable. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. But but I mean, at, at, at two fifty for the two stroke, uh, you can do some real stuff there. So yeah. I'm I'm all about this. And well, the best thing is we we looked at this earlier. I said, well, how much do you think this costs? And you said, oh, twenty thousand dollars. Like this is gonna be stupid. There's oh. a lot of small batch custom machine CNC'd like magic on this front end. There's a lot of interesting stuff here. Uh, but we were at both kind of shocked to find out that these are both essentially like 13 grand, which is probably about a $3,500 markup on kind of the bikes that they're based off of because it looks like they're based off of a honda 450 and a and the and the gas gas 300 um i think most of the parts are are kind of honda and gas gas parts but they built the frame they added their own fuel injection and obviously they added their own drive system and then they probably separately purchased a bunch of parts, but it's essentially a donor bike and engine. And then they've made their modifications to it. But, you know, for this weird small batch thing with kind of an, a niche market and use case, like it's actually surprisingly affordable. And it's American. Yeah. Made in Philadelphia. Super cool. Well, also, you can get the kits. So I think, I don't know how relevant the kits are because they're made for like two, or like one very specific KTM and one very specific Honda, or two Hondas. Yeah. Well, so from I, like 2005 think, to 2011. Uh, I think they. Well, I, that's, yeah, that's just all the, um, the, aluminum frame crfs before fuel injection right if you have a carbureted crf you can basically get a frame kit for this and it's five grand so if you've got one where like you know your engine runs or needs a rebuild or whatever but you know you're like eh, this bike isn't real competitive anymore or whatever for five grand you can breathe some real new life into this so it may be more it may be as much as the cost of your bike is now. But I think this is more of a legacy thing. I think they just still have these around. Yeah, this new- only makes sense if you've already got like a 2009 CRF 250X. It's not worth going out and getting a CRF 250X to then buy the kit and apply to it. But if you've got one just sitting around, I, I see this being pretty compelling. This is a cool garage project. It is. What you're working on, Ted? Two-wheel drive dirt bike. What? <laughs> yeah, this is this is cool. And you get Oh, they also have a KTM 1190 kit that's in development. 
which I think is That's hilarious. for people with more money than sense. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that is fantastic. I, I want to see that. Yeah. I, but yeah. Um, There's somebody yeah. out there with a KTM 1290 that put a recluse clutch on it that's like really happy with himself and then his neighbor did the exact same thing and this is his nuclear option. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. So they they have a new one that they're going to do, probably because KTM won't let them do this and say that it's a KTM. Um, Also, I would imagine that people would probably want to keep the KTM badge on their bike, but add the two-wheel drive. But, yeah, this is just a cool little idea. And, you know, at some point, someone's going to do this. They're going to go riding with all their other KTM and Ducati they're they're gonna go with their um with their multistrada friends and their their twelve hundred their GS twelve hundred friends and all that and you know they're all gonna be like well you gotta let me try out this two wheel drive so I don't know maybe it's it'll catch on and other people will start well here's what I'm gonna say if you have some sort of adventure bike or you're doing some off roading or whatever there are a lot of easy ways to drop three to five thousand dollars on adventuring heavy air quotes your bike right this is one that i could sort of justify because with that extra power to the front wheel you will extend the off-road capability of this machine the hill climbing is going to be noticeably easier the traction when you're doing it the, the so many things about it honestly this, they're gonna tip a, over less often it's it's your bike's gonna be that much more stable this will make you a better rider just because so actually, you'll go more places well now that you, when you think about it a lot of people are not gonna like to hear me say this but in many ways with the big like 1200 plus cc adventure bikes in many ways, they're, you're kind of in the same camp as like the beginner riders on the small displacement bikes in that you've got all this like high up weight and you can't just like bomb through something like all the high performance 250s and 450s can. So you're in this weird situation where you've got all this weight up high, you've got this tall bike and you've got to navigate these trails and things. But what you do have is an insane excess of horsepower and torque for what the conditions are. So if you have to bleed a little performance out of your 170 horsepower KTM like 1290 adventure, and you've got to like lose another 10% to your transmission. Big whoop. Yeah, big whoop. Run it to the front wheel get some extra traction so that you can actually use that horsepower. It actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the reason they're developing that too, is this is a company that seems to be making the majority of its, uh, of its income selling military models. I don't know if they're actually selling them. They may have gotten, well, I, I, I'm not going to say, cause I have absolutely no idea. If I were them, I would invest heavily in developing a Dakar bike. Dakar is one of those... I don't know if it makes... 
a huge amount of sense for Dakar. I think it would. But anyway, so so there we go. I th- I think as far as a mechanical front wheel drive system, this is my favorite. I think it's a runaway favorite. I I, I it's so elaborate. Like the only thing about it that like it's so elegant me- as well though. Like this is the best looking one. It is. It does have the most symmetry. It's not it's not like um it's not really out there and in your face like a lot of the other systems are. Um it's but the the weirdest thing to me is just doubling up everything on the forks. I'm just seeing all the more opportunities for something to go wrong. Uh you just got you just got to let go and deal with it. This is <laughs> I you I'm thinking just gotta, about like I'm thinking about like a tooth chipping on the bevel gear on one side and the two the two drives getting out of sync and they're just like yeah. exploding. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I again worth it. <laughs> worth it. I'm just wondering what the failure states are. Like does it still work? Um, I mean, well, if the whole thing breaks, it's no problem. You well, as can long just as, it, as long as you it just can... disconnect it from from that that second um, that second thing. Like you can just yeah. go home with your rear wheel. Well, as long as as long as it um, as long as it can free wheel in any kind of failure states, or if you can just like retract up the bevels if one of them like chips a tooth or something and just say i'm just going to use one or use none like as long as it'll just freewheel with some part of the front assembly broken um even if it's something you have to like bodge to remove to to do it but like that's the only thing but again like it's super novel and i love how elaborate it is um, I don't, I don't, but no, I, I agree. I like it. It's like so it ridiculous. Yeah. But it is not the best two wheel drive system because as it turns out, there are two entities that are at the cutting edge of the best two wheel drive technology and they are BMW and us, right? <laughs> <laughs> So I really wouldn't be surprised if Honda did this with the Africa Twin as a production option in the next couple of years cuz Honda's known for just just entering the market with insane shit like this that outclasses everyone. So BM so so the best answer is regular mechanical you know I, um ice powered to the rear wheel just like every other bike's been forever with an electric hub motor. That's the answer. It's lightweight. It's simple. It provides the high torque, low speed kind of power that is especially beneficial for these traction situations. And BMW has a, has a 1250 adventure with this, not for sale, but a working prototype. And it looks pretty good. Yeah. And I mean, this is another great. Yeah. And as I said before, the great thing about the electric motor is the fact that you can abstract everything away 
and you have lots of control options as well. Like you can just tie it to the throttle position on for the for the ice motor if it's um, if it's you know fly by uh, ride by wire, or you can just have a potentiometer and have it along an electric um, a fly by wire alongside your mechanical throttle. You, you can also have reverse. Yeah, you can add reverse, which is great on your 600 pound adventure bike when you realize that there's a 2% grade in the parking lot and you can only tiptoe on your bike. Or you're just actually doing something off-road and you get into a situation where you're like, I need to back up out of here and backing up is uphill. Yeah, that's another great reason to have it. Um, If it's not your primary drive, you can just get away with a fairly small battery which you can position anywhere on the bike you like, as long as you can run a cable from it, which allows you to hand, which allows you to balance the bike however you want. You can use regenerative braking, which is just kind of a nice. You could have out. a mode where, yeah, just riding it just slowly puts the the small amount of charge you need back into it. The bike's already making a little bit of excess of power. It's going to be very slow, but if you only need to use it a couple minutes at a time. Yeah. You also got um, some other advantages is you can have multiple throttle inputs. You can have a throttle input off based off of the your throttle hand, or you could have a, a switch deflect to just turn it off altogether. Or you could have an independent throttle if you wanted to. Um, like you could just have like a little snowmobile style like thumb drive on the other handlebar or something. In- and and then you can just so if you if you need to give it more power than you're giving to the rear, or if you need to give it power independently of the rear, you can do that. You've got all sorts of options. Hell, in the event of some sort of horrible engine failure as well. You could have a 25 mile an hour limp home mode for a short distance. Or just to get out of an intersection. Yeah. You know, or get off, you know, get off the highway. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's a big deal. There's so many things. This is the optimal system for, for two-wheel drive. It has to be. It solves all the problems. Yeah. The redundancy factor for for power where it's like, can I just limp out of the woods right now? Or at least make the make the limping home suck a lot less because I've got two different drives and they're independent and if one fails, the other is still okay. Yeah. I, you know what it's making me think before? So we're going to do this to the Vespa, but what might simultaneously be a great experiment as well is doing this on the XR80. Mm-hmm. Like do this on the XR80 to 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 Alakai's bike, and then see if we can scale it up to the 250. Yeah, um, I mean, really, all we need to do that is just one more motor. Yeah, I think I think it's worth taking that that 250 that I've got and. Before we do anything more drastic, put an electric front wheel on it. I think that's doable. Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's going to be a little tricky, but I think that I think we'll find one that we can space right in the front wheel. We can we can get spacers made and things for it. I don't think that's going to be ridiculous. I mean, dirt bike front ends are pretty simple in general. They're designed to come apart quickly. Yeah. So I I think that's a good way to go. Let like do the the gas electric front wheel drive system before we do a two wheel drive a full electric dirt bike. It might even be simpler and better to do before we do the Vespa as well, <laughs> but I still want to do the Vespa this way first. Uh, yeah, but I, I think this is something that doesn't cost that much that might become a totally uh, doable option, right? Like, is there any reason that Honda wouldn't, you know, uh, want to offer this on a, a like a DCT Africa Twin? It's already doing so much computer work. It's um, well, I, well, the part we didn't talk about was how these systems are can be passive as far as the rider is concerned. Because you're like, well, how do you control the front wheel speed? The same way you control it with a pedal assist e bike. There's just a formula for whatever speed the back wheel is going, you want the front wheel to be going. And if and if you're sensing some wheel if the computer senses some wheel slippage, it can it can, you know, add or or remove power for better traction. So it it's better than you could ever be. Well, there's that, but also if it's a geared motor, which you probably want, um they make geared motors with um with clutches in them that will freewheel if the wheel speed exceeds the motor speed yeah mhm yeah so I, that's totally an option as well i love it i i can't wait to have a bike that's two wheel drive and especially with the very little compromise because it, let's say you ride it now you do have to carry around a battery that's another 25 pounds probably depends how far how far you want to go it's it's a pure trade-off that's true Um, yeah there might be a a variety of batteries um, but there's if but if you take out the battery the motor doesn't weigh that much now it is unsprung weight but still you're only adding what 10 15 pounds it depends if you go for a beefy like 10 kilowatt motor it can be as much as 25 pounds, but... But in the context of a GS-1250, that's yeah. nothing. I don't Actually, I have seen some cast motor, some like, um, some really large diameter motors, like 10 kilowatt ones that were like 40 pounds. Um, but those are like the, the cheapest general purpose ones that you basically put on anything um like all cast wheels not uh not spoked or anything but yeah you can you can get it down quite a bit um the other advantage of this is that generally the most expensive part of an electric motorcycle is the batteries so adding another motor doesn't actually add very much cost to the bike yeah, if maybe it just comes with its own very minimal, very small, like, you know, 
two miles of range battery that's just for a little assist here and there in the mud and then if you want you can buy a battery that'll pull the bike 10 miles if you want yeah well even um a lot of e-bikes these days like for e-bike conversion kits you know they'll, they'll put the motor on the rear if it's a production one and lots of them lots of companies will sell you a rear motor kit but honestly a lot of for especially a lot of like standard non-standard bikes um especially with like split frame designs uh a lot of the companies that are making the kits are now saying well fuck it why deal with the the drivetrain and getting the the free we, the free hub to put to match up with the motor and get the disc to line up why don't we just put an electric motor on the front wheel so they actually do that and generally, if you're not going over 15 miles an hour, then they say, well, that's totally fine then. Because it's just going to handle the same, essentially, on any kind of, you know, anything modest is really, it doesn't matter if it's front or rear. And probably anything under 30 miles an hour on a motorcycle is totally fine. Yeah, I'm... You may not want to get a knee down, but... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'm in, I'm in love with this this whole set this whole setup this whole concept. Um, I mean, I really like the Christini, but I'm I'm more ultimately excited about the the hybrid system. Also, if you burn out your starter clutch, you can still get home. That's true. <laughs> yeah you you can you can pull yourself with the electric front wheel and then bump start the bike or any number of things. There's there's a lot of different options. So. Um, yeah, so we're at an hour and a half here, which I think is a pretty good length. Um, uh, I mean, there's other topics we can do, but let's save them. I think I'll tease it next week. We're going to do a breakdown of biker music, what it traditionally has been some new subgenres that are emerging. We're looking at you motocross and, um, there's some original compositions in there specifically made for the genres. There's suggestions on where we think biker music should be going. And uh, it's sort of evolving nature because not every pursuit has its own soundtrack, right? There's no such thing as sewing music, right? Quilting doesn't have an associated soundtrack. And, you know, there's even lots of like sports other sports that don't have a soundtrack like sure soccer does there are jock jams right but does tennis have music i don't think it does right cricket certainly well cricket might actually but anyway not that many pursuits have their own soundtrack and motorcycling we can all agree definitely does even if we don't agree on what it exactly is right (laughs) so we're going to do an exam of that and I think that's going to be a pretty exciting episode. I'm amassing a lot of notes on it. So let's remind everyone again to please send in those ratings and reviews. Send us emails. We, we want a real big batch of emails. And with that, we'll remind everyone to stay safe, stay tuned, keep fighting the dragon, and let's do the outro. And I don't want to die I just want to ride on my motorcycle Gold 